question. It's a very long question, but a very important question. Here it is. How could a man who had enjoyed an intimate relationship with God from his early days, who had written some of the most wonderful hymns of praise to God ever penned, who had been used by God in the most remarkable way imaginable, who was the greatest king that God's chosen people had ever known, and who was given the rare appellation that he was a man after God's own heart. How could such a man commit adultery? Followed by conspiracy. Followed by murder. You see, we need to know. Because if such a man could do such a thing, then any of us, far lesser mortals, are capable of something similar, or maybe worse. So, how did King David, for that was his name of course, commit such appalling sins? Where and when did he go wrong? Let's look at what we could call the anatomy of adultery, a case study in temptation. If you know the Bible, which very honestly tells the whole story, warts and all, then you may say that it all began one spring evening in Jerusalem, is what 2 Samuel chapter 11 tells us. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. And from the roof he looked down and he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. That's how it happened. And still happens. A couple of beautiful people are attractive to one another. And despite the fact that they may be married, they sleep together. The temptation is just too great. It just happens as it happened with David and Bathsheba. But the Bible, God's Word, does not let us off the hook so easily. Or David off the hook so easily. Here's how the story actually begins. Not in 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 2, but 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 1. Here it is. In the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Notice the words I've emphasized and highlighted. You see, David should have been fulfilling his God-given responsibility of leading the armies of Israel into battle. Instead, he delegated that responsibility to Joab, his commander-in-chief, and David stayed at home. And the devil who finds work for idle hands to do will find women for idle eyes to see. And David is doomed 
David committed adultery because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so as we conclude our series, Learning from the Lord's Prayer, it is significant that the Lord Jesus Christ tells his followers to pray, lead us not into temptation. Luke 11, verse 4, page 1042 in the Bible. If we are Christians, children of God, we not only need, as we saw last week, to ask our Father for forgiveness when we sin, forgive us our sins, but we also preemptively need to ask Him to prevent us from walking into situations where we are likely to sin, where the temptation to sin will be so powerful that there is no way we will be able to resist it. It is too late to try and resist the temptation of adultery, either literally or in your heart, when you're looking at a naked woman, either in the flesh or on a computer screen. We need to start long before this by saying, when and whenever we pray, Father, lead us not into temptation. This is a vast subject, and all I want to do today is to try and unpack or explain what we mean when we pray, lead us not into temptation. And I want to highlight two very basic, very simple things that even the youngest person here, if you've never been in church before, I hope you'll understand what I'm talking about and I'll try and make it as understandable as possible. Two things that we say when we pray, lead us not into temptation. When we pray, lead us not into temptation, the first thing we do is, we acknowledge that we are easily led. We are easily led into sin. Into situations of temptation to do wrong, where it is likely, indeed inevitable, that we will yield to those temptations. Now, there are three reasons for this. Traditionally, they are called the world, the flesh, and the devil. Most people today either don't understand or misunderstand what those terms mean. So, let me put them again in easier language. And I'm going to use the first person singular to stress the personal nature of the problem, whilst also recognizing that when we pray in the plural, lead us not into temptation, we recognize that all of us, without exception, are in the same boat together. All right. Three reasons why I am vulnerable to temptation. I am vulnerable to temptation because I live in an environment that encourages me to sin. I live in an environment that encourages me to sin. The word the Bible uses for this environment is the word, the world. Not the physical created universe that we see around us, in which we live and breathe, but the moral world of human beings and societies of which we are a part, and in which the followers of Jesus must live out their lives. So, for example, in his first letter, the Apostle John writes, notice the words, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he hasn't does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. 
1 John 2 verses 15 and 16. That world and its values is in rebellion against God. Opposed to the way that God says human beings should live, opposed to his laws by which he says human society should operate, opposed to the maker's instructions, which indeed are intended for a happy life, for the health of the individual and the nation. From time to time in any society, its laws may approximate more closely to what God's laws are. But beneficial though this always is, in every society, there is always lurking just below the surface the seeds of rebellion. Which is likely to break out, usually to begin within small steps of insurrection, which lead further and further away from God. In the first stages of such rebellion, such things are done in secret. And the only crime is to get caught. But in the later stages... You can sin openly and no one will say anything about it. In fact, they may pat you on the back and say, wow, great thing you did there. Now, you don't need me to tell you which direction our society is heading in. What is difficult, therefore, if you are a follower of Jesus, is to be different. To stand up and sometimes, when it's appropriate, to speak up. Because we live in an environment which encourages us to sin second problem we have is this. I have another problem. I possess a nature that inclines me to sin. As many of you will know, we now have a dog who is just one year old. Last Tuesday evening, I took him, Roly his name is, for a walk in a field near the manse in Morningside, where I usually go. I let him off the leash and then I noticed he was some way behind me that Roly was rolling around in the grass and I wondered what he was doing. And when he finally ran towards me, I could see and smell what he had been doing. Let me simply say that I'd forgotten that a small herd of cows have recently been introduced to the field. Now, some of us here actually favour the colours green and white but a white West Highland Terrier with dark green patches did not fill me with any sense of joy. Neither was Roly too thrilled when we stood him in the sink and tried to scrub him clean. However, I'm absolutely convinced about this, that were I to let him off the lead in the same field, he will do exactly the same thing again. Now, I expect every dog owner in the congregation to tell me at the door why he does this, why it's a good thing for a dog to do this, and hopefully how I can stop him doing this. But no one will tell me why we human beings sin again and again, always with disastrous consequences, other than that there is something in our nature, our fallen human nature, which inclines us to sin and nothing seems to stop us. Here are the words of a very righteous, religious, upright man. Put most of us to shame. Me, certainly. Same was Paul, Pharisee. This is what he wrote. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law, God's law, is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. I know that nothing lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For... I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. 
for what I do is not the good I want to do, nor the evil I don't want to do. This I keep on doing. Romans 7, 15 to 19. And that is why Jesus on that night when he was betrayed, as we've already mentioned, finding his disciples sleeping in his greatest hour of need, when he is facing the temptation to abandon his mission, he says, could you not pray with me for one hour? The Spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Watch and pray so that you will not enter into temptation. So I am vulnerable to temptation because I live in an environment that encourages me to sin and I possess a nature that inclines me to sin. And if that were not bad enough and hard enough, I have a third problem. I have an enemy who entices me to sin. In this different occasion of the Lord's Prayer, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, our Lord Jesus Christ added something after this particular petition. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's probably the correct translation. It could be evil or evil one. There are some people who do not believe in the devil. All I can say is that Jesus believed in him and was tempted by him. And the Bible describes him as a formidable foe who does all he can to entice people to do what God says they should not do. And if he can persuade you that he doesn't exist, that's even better for his purposes. And his tactics are always the same. To make us doubt God's word and goodness and to make sin seem attractive. That's how he began with our first parents. If you go right back to the beginning of the Bible, page 5 in the church Bible, if you want to look at it, it'll be on the screen as well. Our first parents in the Garden of Eden, in paradise. And along comes Satan in the form of a serpent. This is what it says, Genesis 3. Now the serpent, listen carefully, because this is his tactics. He never uses different ones. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat fruit from any tree in the garden? Of course God didn't say anything like that. And the woman tells him. The woman said, we may eat fruit from the trees, uh, from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from that one tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. It will have bad consequences. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Wow. When the woman saw, notice, that the fruit of the tree was good for fruit, food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the evil one, the tempter, uses the same tactics again and again and succeeds again and again. Listen, there is no way you will outwit him. Back to our dog. Don't use my family in illustrations, but the dog can't object. Sometimes the dog goes out in the garden. It's quite a long garden if you've been to the man's. And I can't get him back in again. I call him and he's barking and disturbing the neighbours. But there's a very easy tactic to get him back in. I just rattle his biscuit tin and he runs in like a rocket. He always falls for it. Because I'm smarter than Rolly. <laughs> and Satan is smarter than me. And you. So I'm vulnerable to sin because I live in an environment that encourages me to sin. I possess a nature that inclines me to sin and I have an enemy who entices me to sin. Thus, when we pray, lead us not into temptation, we are simply acknowledging our problem. I don't say simply in the sense that this is not profound. Not simply in the sense that it's easy. 
One of the hardest things is to admit those problems that we've talked about that I'm vulnerable to sin. Vulnerable to temptation. Likely to give in. And what does that lead to? Pride, which always precedes a fall. Now, if we stopped here, we would go home depressed. That's how Paul felt in that passage we read in Romans 7. He concludes with the vital question. He's summarizing his experience. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Now here's his question. Who will rescue me from this body of death? How do I get out of this? And unless you come to the point where you're prepared to ask this question, you will never be interested in, let alone discover any answers. Who will rescue or deliver us? Only one person, which is why Jesus taught us to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver, same word as rescue in Romans 7, 24. Rescue us from the evil one. So here's the second thing when we pray, lead us not into temptation. As I said, there's nothing profound about this at all on one level. Putting it into practice is a lot more difficult. When I pray, lead me not into temptation, when we pray, lead us not into temptation, we not only affirm that we are easily led, but secondly, when we pray, lead us not into temptation, we acknowledge that we need God to lead us. One of the most common pictures that the Bible uses to describe the relationship between God and his people, one that we've already sung about, is that of a shepherd and his sheep. King David, being a shepherd himself in his early life, penned the beautiful words of Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. Another Hebrew hymn, Psalm 100, puts it in a corporate sense for God's people, that we belong to God. Know that the Lord is God, it is he who made us, we are his, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Yet the prophet Isaiah admits that we've all got a problem, that we've all turned away from God. Isaiah 53, verse 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And when Jesus walked on earth, he saw the same problem, using the same terms, that we are lost without God. This is what Matthew records in Matthew 9. He says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He was moved in his heart. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And in one of his parables, Jesus said that God is like a shepherd who goes out to seek lost sheep, to rescue them, to deliver them, to bring them home with rejoicing. And he described himself as the good shepherd, the one who lays down his life for the sheep. John 10, verse 11. That's God's rescue plan. Now, just let me pause here for a moment and ask you a question. Have you been rescued? Or to put it in Bible terms, and it's, it's a word that people don't like, but it, it's what the Bible says. Have you, have you been saved? Has God rescued you out of your sin through what Jesus did when he died and laid down his life for you to bring you back to God, to rescue you? It's God's rescue plan. It's the most wonderful news of all. It's why this church is here. It's why I'm a preacher. No other reason. Have you been rescued? Are you saved yet? Or you're still in your sin, still saying, I don't know what he's talking about, I can cope. Not the man who said, I can give it smoking, didn't it? A hundred times before. I, I can sort my own life out. Listen, you'll never sort it out. You'll never beat Satan. 
But God sent his son to rescue you. Maybe today is your day, salvation day, rescue day. Jesus said when it happens, there's happiness in heaven. The angels rejoice. Many of us, by God's grace, can say, well, yeah, I can look back on an occasion, a time in my life when I was rescued, when I was saved. But I have to tell you, you've still got a problem. Well, I've got a problem. I don't know whether you have. My problem is this. The hymn writer says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I am liable to stray. And I'm liable to stray into situations of danger. I'm stupid enough to say, I wonder how close to the cliff I can get without falling over. Instead of saying, I better stay as far away as possible, because I might fall over. So, how do you ensure that this doesn't happen? Well, you ensure it by praying, Lord, lead me not into temptation today. You need to follow the Father. You need His direction in where you go. Not just in what you do. Because if He doesn't guide you in where you go, then if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, what you do is a fait accompli. You need His help to guide you, following the Father, seeking His direction. Now, this prayer has a negative, it's stated negatively, lead us not into temptation. In other words, in the places where we'll be tempted. I also want to say in a moment that there is a positive counterpart to it as well. We'll talk about that in a moment. But let's start with the negative, not into temptation. Almost every book on the Lord's Prayer, and I've read about 20 at least, spends time with wrestling with various problems with this particular petition. Lead us not into temptation. People say, why do you pray that God will not lead you into temptation when God wouldn't want to lead you into temptation in the first place? And how could God lead you into temptation? Didn't James say in his first letter, in his letter, in the first chapter, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. That's James 1, verses 13, 14. And this provokes another discussion. People say, but hang on a moment. When Jesus was baptized, straight afterwards we read, he was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. How do you work that out? Now, I've thought a lot about this, as lots of people have, but let me just say simply this. I believe when we pray, lead us not into temptation, we are asking God, our Father, as his children, not to lead us, his children, into, some, into situations where he knows we would succumb to the temptation and would become ensnared by the evil one. Where we would succumb to temptation. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. Now, there are situations into which God allows us to go, into which God leads us, where we are tempted and tested, so that our faith might be strengthened. In such situations, if you're asking God to lead you, and you find yourself in that kind of situation, you can be sure that God will help you out of it. Why? 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. No temptation has seized you, except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he'll provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So, let me say this. 
if you find yourself in a, tempta- in a situation where you are tempted to do something wrong, where the temptation is totally irresistible and there is no way out, I can say with absolute confidence, God didn't send you there or lead you there. If God has led you into it, he will lead you out of it or through it. That was David's problem. He should have been leading the army. Instead, he's sitting at home, walking around on the roof of his palace. He's not only taking his physical armor off, he's taking his spiritual armor off. And there he is, unguarded and unprotected, and all it needs is a woman. And let me say, I'm not being sexist about this sometimes, all that a woman needs is a man. Someone who maybe she thinks will care for her more than her present spouse. He's unable to resist the temptation. So when we pray, lead us not into temptation, we are asking God not to lead us into those situations where we might succumb to temptation, but only those in which he leads us where we can overcome temptation. Now, okay, have you got that, those two alternatives? Here's the problem. Often we don't know which is which. We need God to lead us because we don't know which is which. Now, of course, some situations clearly fall into the category of a temptation I will not be able to resist. If you have a problem with alcohol, then don't go and work in a brewery or spend your time in pubs. If you have a problem with lust, you'd be foolish to watch erotic movies. You're foolish anyway, but particularly if you've got a particular weakness in that area. Such situations are so obvious that you hardly need to ask God not to lead you into them. But other, temptation, other tempting situations are not so obvious. Let me be practical, and this may surprise you, all right? Just stay with me. Anyone here thinking of moving house? Wow, that's a nice house. It may be that the Lord does not lead you to that house in the country that you've set your heart on. Not because the nice garden is not ideal for your children. Not that the lower price outside Edinburgh is more affordable than to you on your wages. Not that the clean air is not more healthy for you than your children. But because God knows that if you went to that particular house, it would distance you from a live, active fellowship with his people and you would fall into temptation and fall away from Christ. (laughs) I don't know whether it would or not. In your case, although I've seen enough people move 10 miles and move a million miles from God as a result. I don't know. So, if you're thinking of moving house, when you pray, lead us not into temptation, you're actually saying to God, Lord, if that means that house will lead me into temptation, then I'd prefer to live down the road in a second floor flat without a garden. Are you hoping for a new job with extra responsibility and more pay? When you pray, lead me not into temptation, it may be that the Lord does not want you to have that job. Not because he doesn't want you to use your gifts or to have more money that you can use in his service, but because he knows that if you got that job, it may face you in a situation where the temptation of the love of money, which which the Word of God says is the root of all evil, 
or even some sharp financial practices that you're going to have to face up in that situation, he knows that you will be unable to resist the attraction in that particular situation. So when you pray, lead me not in temptation, it may be that he says, okay, that's not the job for you. And maybe you can think to yourself, Lord, I just cannot think why you didn't give me that job. It was ideal for me. It got all my gifts out because you don't know what's down the road and where that's going to lead you. So what do you do? I don't know. You pray, lead me not into temptation. Are you looking for a life partner? When you pray, lead me not into temptation, it may be that the Lord chooses not to give you that person that you've set your heart on. Because he knows that that person, or your love for that person, may draw you away from him. And will lead to spiritual disaster. So when you pray, you say, Lord, lead me not into temptation. All you're doing is acknowledging that you need God to lead you because you don't know you don't know yourself well enough. Only God knows our hearts and our propensity to sin and what things will drag, drag us away from Him. And those situations in which our spiritual health is threatened. And because we don't know, then we need to ask our loving Heavenly Father to guide us, to lead us. Nice. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Don't say, I've got this worked out about this job, about this house, about this career, whatever it may be. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Or in the old version it says, he will direct your path. So in every situation, ask your loving Heavenly Father, Lord, don't lead me into tempting situations where I might become ensnared by evil and entrapped by the evil one. And our problem is, so often we don't do that. So often we say, well, it's obvious, you know, you want a job? Well, just go for the best job. Look at the terms, look at the conditions. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. We're foolish not to do that. But, over all of it, overarching our decisions, is God's plan. That's the negative aspect. But I don't want to leave it there. I want to stress the positive. When we say, Lord, lead us not into temptation, we're saying to God also... Lead me in your ways. Or as the psalmist puts it, lead me in paths of righteousness. His right ways, not our wrong ways. As some of you know, we recently returned to Nigeria where we used to live out in a bush village, Plateau State, 20 miles east of Jos. It's an interesting community because it's right on the fracture line where Muslim North meets Christian South. If you know West Africa, there's this kind of line across. Muslim North, Christian South. And in our village and community, there were mixed communities and people got on very well until sadly recently. I remember one day a pastor saying to me, a Christian pastor saying to me, explaining to me, he said, you know, he said, I'm a Christian. That means I can only have one wife. Unlike my Muslim neighbour. I was quite surprised that he said this because he kind of said it with a very sad face. And when I probed a bit further, you know what I discovered? He was actually saying, though he probably wouldn't have put it this blunt, he was actually saying, those Muslims, they're jolly lucky in this life because they can have up to four wives. I'd really like to do that, but I'm a Christian, so I can only have one. And never mind, we'll get our own back on them when we get to heaven and they don't. He wouldn't have put it in those words, but that's what he was saying. Now, we may smile, but I often think we give the same impression in our society. 
Oh, the non-Christians, they have all the fun when they sin, but Christians endure such sacrifices so we can make it into heaven. Better to be a miserable Christian than a happy sinner. But our experience should be that God's will is good, pleasing, perfect. Romans 12, 1 and 2. And that knowing God as our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ as our Saviour and Friend is the best life imaginable. Not by and by when you die, but here and now. Okay, it's tough sometimes. Okay, you lose out materially sometimes. Okay, it may mean in God's providence that you're single, not married. And you don't have that nice house that you would have liked. But the compensations far outweigh that. Better, far better to be a happy Christian than a miserable sinner now and eternally. So we need to pray every day. Father, lead us not into temptation, but lead us instead into your ways, your good way, your perfect way. Lead us daily in your presence where there is fullness of joy. Or in one word that expresses it all and people say it now, you know, they give you a good meal and they say, enjoy! And then and only then, as we live like that, will other people want to follow Christ. Not because we tell them that sin is bad for them, but because we show them that Christ is good for them. And that there is nothing, nothing, that even comes close to knowing Him, loving Him, and following Him. So we pray, lead us not into temptation, but lead us in your ways, paths of righteousness, for your name's sake. Let's pray together.